gentlemen, and welcome to the Stranger Times podcast. Brackets, uh, award-winning, we don't like to talk about it. I hope you're well, and it's an uh, exciting time. We're getting very near to the release of the book now. Come on, relight my fire. It's, it's so close, you can almost touch it. I hope you're well. This week on the episode, we're not going to have a preview of Relight My Fire, because we like to... Uh, break things up for you so we've got a brand new exclusive can't read here or otherwise imbibe can you imbibe a story no uh reading here is the two ways of getting a story generally isn't it um i suppose you can feel it with braille there we go i mean is my stuff available in braille i've never been told it is uh it probably isn't so sorry to any blind people, but to be fair, you get the wonderful Brennan McDonald reading the book, which is, I mean, people who have perfect eyesight can still, uh, you know, still seem to prefer uh, Brendan. I can't blame him. Anyway, um, let's crack on. Yes, just quick reminders. Uh, it's very, I think we're near the deadline now. It's if you want to do the pre-order and get the stuff. So get for the hardback, go to thestrangetimes.co.uk or .com, I believe works as well. Thestrangetimes.co.uk, order there. If you can, that'd be fantastic. The events, I've, I won't give you through all the details again. They're up on the website, but basically starting from January the 22nd, I'm going to say. Probably should know that by now. Yes, Jan- Monday, January 22nd, Kibworth, a lovely indie bookshop in Leicestershire. Then uh, Leeds on the 22nd, Liverpool on the 23rd, on the, no, Leeds on the 23rd, Liverpool on the 24th, Manchester on the 25th, and then Glasgow the next week, and... Yes, we've got a wonderful Sarah Moorhead with us in Liverpool. My, my old mate Gary Delaney's going to do the book event in Leeds, which should be hilarious because it's going to invariably just end up with the two of us just settling scores on each other. It's 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 going to be a very different book event, put it that way. In Manchester, as always, the wonderful Phil Mealy. We've done three of these together now. There's our third one together, and he's always a, a delight. Uh, I just love chatting to Phil. It's always a hoot. Everyone seems to really enjoy it, and uh, I know I do. Then obviously Glasgow the next week with the wonderful Chris Bookmark. Anyway, cracking on. Speaking of friends of the show, yeah, let's say that. We have a exclusive new short story today, read by the wonderful Mark Stay. Now, if you've been a fan of my work for a while, you would have heard me talk about Mark before. He's He's been on the live events with me on our stream. He also hosted one for us in London last year. He's a brilliant author. He writes mainly fantasy these days, but not exclusively. The Witches of Woodville is his main series, which are lovely uh, set in World War Two. They started off being sort of like cosy fantasy, then they got a little bit darker, but they're they're great. The last one, The Holly King, I really enjoyed. Really, really. My favourite of the series so far is the fourth one. So, big fan of Mark's work. And then we were actually at the British Fantasy Convention together with loads of other people. And I, I saw him do a reading. That was the one where he won an award we don't like to talk about. But I saw him do a reading and uh, I was sitting in the back of the room going, he's fantastic at this. Why finish get him to do a short story? Because he, he comes from an acting background and stuff and as well as being a a, a use work in publishing and then he became he sort of does editing and stuff as well. But he's uh, he's got, he was, up until recently, he was part of the Best Seller Experiment podcast, which is wonderful. If you're going and getting into writing, I've always highly recommended it. It's them talking to some of the biggest authors in the world and me at one point, possibly two points actually. It's a great podcast. Do check it out and more importantly, check out Mark's books. They're fantastic. When it comes to the story, by the way, as an author, you get asked certain questions again and again. I get asked about a lot about the difference between being a stand-up and an author and all that sort of stuff. I've, I've answered that question a lot. But one of the other questions all authors get asked is, where does your ideas come from? Where do your ideas come from? Which is frankly a ludicrous question because the whole point is they come out of nowhere and they're, they're sort of, you know, flights of fantasy and all that kind of thing. Having said that, 
I can't explain where these certain story ideas come out of. The next couple of short story ideas. Basically, I don't leave the house very much, right? By which I mean, I basically bring the dog out for a walk every day. I go to my offices in the back of our, is in the lovely thing in the back of our garden, my building at this point. We've got luck in the new house. So I, I don't leave the house that much for various different things. So what I do, I try and turn it into a short story, apparently. For example... A story is coming up in a few weeks, which I'm again very excited about. is is all about miniature painting and things like that, because I like when I leave the house. I go one of my big hobbies is I go play a, a certain board game. I'll tell you about it the next time in the podcast. But basically, I turn that into a short story. One of the other things that happened over the last couple of years, myself and Wonder Wife have been lucky enough to go over and do book tours in Germany, and sure enough. I have turned that into a short story. In fact, it's another little project myself and the wife have as well, which came out of that, which hopefully we'll see the light today at some point. But yeah, basically we went to Germany and on our last trip, uh, our wonderful publisher over there, Dominic, brought us, he always brings us and does a little tourism stuff with us as well, which is really nice. And they bring us to like, do the bookshop event and then during the day we go off to a bit of tourism. And last time we were looking up to go see the Gutenberg Museum where the, the printing press and the Gutenberg Bibles and all that sort of stuff is, which was fantastic. And myself and Wonder Wife always have a wonderful time with Dom. He's, he's, he's a lovely, lovely man. And I basically use that as the inspiration for this story. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a lot of fun. I really like the story and uh, I'm very excited to get out. And hello to all of our German readers by the way because we always have such a blast in germany we really look forward to going over again and you know i know we will go i think we might actually be going over in a couple of months on an unofficial trip sort of below the radar shush don't tell anybody haven't sorted that out yet because we're just launching a book that's all we're worried about now yes but this is a a fun little tale it is in the stranger times world i don't know actually it's interesting because the fun thing about doing these short stories is I kind of have connections to the main, if you like, Stranger Times world of, of Bancroft and the paper and all that sort of stuff. In my head, they link in and there are certain links that you might, if you pay very close attention, pick out. But I don't know if they'll ever come to fruition as being part of the main story and stuff. It's kind of quite cool just to colour around the edges and even in my own head it just gives the ideas so much more vibrancy and depth to them. Because all these short stories exist and the world expands beyond the books for me. So I hope as listeners slash readers, you enjoy that as well, because it really makes it so much more fun for me. So without further ado, here is the wonderful Mark Stay, author extraordinaire, podcaster, uh, lover, fighter, all of the above. But today he's going to be reading a good book written by yours truly. Take it away, Mark. <laughs> Leo Klein held his glass of Riesling against his cheek and stared at the package sat on the table in front of him. It was an unremarkable cardboard box that gave no hint of its remarkable contents. If you told the average person what it contained, they would be utterly repulsed and wouldn't understand. If you told a certain subset of the population, they'd understand what it was, but run a mile. But if you told a select few... Those who would truly understand what it was, they would pay handsomely for it and do anything to get hold of it. In fact, a representative of one of those people were on their way right now to this utterly unremarkable hotel room in Mines to give Leo more money than he'd ever been paid for anything. So why was he toying with the idea of doing something stupid, of breaking one of the defining tenets of his career? 
Was it because he had recently found himself actively considering retirement for the first time, and there was a way one big payday could become two or even three? Was it that he'd recently found himself getting stale, losing his edge, and this would certainly be a way of livening things up? Or was it just that a third glass of this rather good white had been a mistake, and it was giving the voices of his dumber demons leeway to whisper in his ear? He had got into this game by a circuitous route, but then it wasn't like it was a job with a set career path. He was an acquirer of things, a very particular type of thing. There were only a handful of people worldwide working at a similar level to him. They were all more or less on polite speaking terms. They all hated each other's guts, and they would all, given the opportunity, happily watch the others slowly burn to death while roasting marshmallows over the flaming corpses. This was not a business suffused with sentimentality. In its way, it was still more honest than the world of arts and antiquity dealership through which he had come. That was full of people selling each other the stolen pasts of other countries, cultures, families, all the while wearing a benign smile and pontificating on how vital it was to preserve history, the importance of art. Millionaire hedge fund managers weren't outbidding each other for a Dali or a Rembrandt because they wanted to preserve or appreciate anything but their own egos. It was just a thing, a $12 million thing that was a way of showing the world that you had $12 million you had so little use for that you could afford to hang it on your wall, where the person who would see it most would be your minimum wage Filipino cleaner who was working two jobs to put a kid through school. And that was even assuming that the Dali or Rembrandt was real. Some estimates suggested that 20% of the masterpieces currently hanging in galleries around the world were fakes. Leo thought that number was low. It was an incredible system. Only so many people could be regarded as experts, and they made their bones by telling everyone else what was and wasn't real. Once they pronounced something genuine, it was career suicide not to keep backing up that assertion until the end of time. The only experts considered qualified to contradict you also had a long history of things they'd vouched for. Nobody likes to be second-guessed. It was a form of mutually assured destruction. Given that the average buyer couldn't tell you the stylistic intricacies to look for in a Van Gogh any more than dogs could play snooker, it was a perfectly rigged system. You just had to be careful how blatant you were. Leo had lost his job with the auction house in Berlin that he'd worked at since leaving university for crossing that line. He had not done anything worse than others. He'd just not been as careful. It was a valuable lesson learned, and it had served him well over the subsequent couple of decades. Disgraced as he supposedly was, he should have been untouchable. In fact, he had been exactly that for about three months. Enough time for him to confirm with every auction house, dealer and gallery in Germany, France, Belgium, the UK and vast swathes of the rest of the world that he was toxic. A morally dubious shyster with a fine art degree. Versions of him with clean records could be found serving coffee in any city in Germany. Leo had been packing his meagre belongings into boxes, unsure of where he was going when the call had come. Frederick Book a small-time antiquities dealer, had invited him to lunch. Freddy's was the kind of operation that sold things to people who didn't know the difference between an antique 
and something just being old. Leo had not been in any position to turn his nose up at the chance, or, indeed, the free meal. By that point, he owed all of his friends money, not to mention the people he'd owed money to for so long that they were no longer friends. Freddy had been charm personified throughout the meal, where they talked about everything except the business. A gentleman in his seventies, replete in blazer and dicky bow, he'd regaled Leo with amusing anecdotes about his travels around the world and the characters he'd met. Then he brought him back to the office and started dropping hints about other things he dealt in. Leo had almost settled on the idea that he was leading up to admitting he dabbled in the odd bit of Nazi memorabilia when he'd called his assistant Monica into the room. A raven-haired woman in her forties with sharp eyes and an athlete's body, Leo had felt the heat of her glare on the way in. Frederick had smiled at her and said, If you would please, Liebling. Leo had then sat in his seat as, with a motion of her hand, Monica had raised it off the ground and caused it to levitate around the room. Freddy had laughingly told him later that he got the job because he was the first candidate who hadn't screamed. Then it had been laid out. Freddy's established business was a front for another, considerably more interesting enterprise. Magic existed in the world, and not only that, but many of those who could harness it had a great deal of wealth and power. Much of it had been acquired over centuries, seeing as death did not call on them as it did to others. In such a world, it was natural that objects of great power would exist and, ergo, there would be a trade in them. It was a difficult realm to traverse, not least because pushing a fake would cost you a lot more than your job. Freddy had emphasised his point by showing Leo a set of pictures he kept in his safe. They had been sent to him by a customer. They showed what had happened to one of his competitors who had disappointed that discerning buyer. Leo considered himself a cold-hearted individual as much by necessity as nature, but to this day, almost twenty years later, he occasionally woke up in a cold sweat. The images freshly reburned into his mind. He was thankful for that lesson too. He diligently learned everything Freddy had to teach, and when he passed away, Leo had given him the grand funeral he deserved and then proceeded to carry on the business. Officially, the old scoundrel had died in his sleep at the ripe old age of 76. Unofficially, it was true he had been in bed, but accompanied by Monica and a couple of her friends, Freddy, when in his cups, had occasionally shared far too many details with Leo about his sex life. It seemed he was quite the connoisseur of the possibilities that magic offered in the enhancement of what he referred to as the pleasures of the flesh. His and Monica's relationship was not merely that of boss, underling, or rather, it appeared it reversed in certain, specific situations. To Leo's great surprise, Monica had donated the sizable inheritance she'd received to Freddy's will to an animal rescue shelter and kept her job as office manager. He'd never asked about it, but he did notice she had worn a great deal of black since. In comparison to his former mentor, Leo was remarkably dull. He enjoyed a fine bottle of wine, but only to a healthy level. He'd had a few casual sexual partners, but nothing too serious or exciting. In fact, the closest thing he had to an addiction was shoes. He'd just kicked off his chocolate brown tremezzas, finest handcrafted Italian leather. He had samples wares from around the world, but nobody did it quite like the Italians. They might not be able to form a stable government or collect taxes, but they were a nation that understood how luxury was done. 
Leo had been at this job for 20 years now, and while it had never been dull, business had quietened down over the last few. That had been a result of a phenomenon where apparently the amount of magic in the world was decreasing. He had been forced to take the word of people who knew more about such things. A peculiarity of the trade was that nobody in his position was a member of the folk or a magic user of any kind. There was a certain logic to it. This world was filled with paranoia, and a dealer being unable to use the products they offered granted them a certain cloak of protection. So, he had adapted to a world with less magic in it and tended to the investments that made up his retirement fund. They weren't what they should have been thanks to a disastrous investment in a can't-miss timeshare development in the Seychelles. It hadn't collapsed into the sea, but it might as well have done. Then, out of nowhere, came what the folk referred to as the Rising. Suddenly, the tide of background magic reversed, and it started flowing back into the world, and business was once again booming. Coincident or not, there were new players emerging, like the one he was currently engaged by, for example. In his entire career, he'd never worked for one single buyer exclusively, but then he'd never been offered such an obscene amount of money before. He was on retainer. Whoever this new entity was, they had a shopping list of extremely interesting items and a standing desire to know about anything else that showed up too. Their goal was power, and they were refreshingly open to any and all suggestions as to where it could be found. This was why Leo was in minds of all places, with its excellent wine and limited selection of interesting people to drink it with. A small city on the banks of the Rhine, it was known for many things, including being the birthplace of Gutenberg the father of movable type. Admittedly, the baby itself may have looked suspiciously Chinese, but half the battle in innovation had always been about making sure you got the credit. It was the site of the Gutenberg Museum, with its extensive collection of historic printing machines and important texts. The jewels in the crown were two copies of the Gutenberg Bible, the first book printed using movable type. They were billed as priceless, which was a term Leo loathed. He knew better than anyone. Everything had its price. Still, they would fetch somewhere north of 30 million at auction, although any such auction would have to be done very, very quietly, as the German government didn't enjoy people stealing their national treasures. Not that they were of interest to Leo or his client. No, they may have been exceptional and historic books, but they were ultimately just books. The museum held far more interesting treats for the discerning carouser. Leo's gift had always been having an acute eye for human weakness. It was invaluable in this game. The items he was after were rarely simply offered up for sale. They had to be acquired. But this item had been especially challenging. He doubted it even existed beyond urban myth, but, as he'd been asked, he had duly gone looking. A former museum curator with a politician for a son and an embarrassing search history had told him where it might just be. A DNA expert with a special interest in anthropodermic bibliopathy, or as the layman knew it, books bound in human skin, had confirmed both seeing it and substantiating its provenance. Back in the 19th century, books bound in human skin was something of a macabre fascination in certain circles. Most of the supposed examples of the phenomenon had been proven fakes by scientific analysis, goat's hide being the most common substitute. Most of the real ones were rather hilariously medical textbooks, 
a certain subset of doctors at the time being remarkably eco-friendly when it came to reusing things they happened to have lying around. These practices were, of course, frowned upon in these more enlightened times, and several institutions had recently come under attack for retaining such artefacts. The outraged used social media to register their disgust at the use of the skin of a centuries-dead person they didn't know, furiously typing away on their beloved device manufactured by slave labour in the world they currently inhabited. Leo really had grown so terribly tired of people. The book Leo was interested in was not a medical textbook or some dreary philosophical tome. No, it was something very different. Even better, the museum did not know what it was. It knew it was bound in human skin, of course, hence why it was hidden away. But they didn't know the true nature of the thing. It was written in a language almost nobody could read anymore. A shortage exacerbated by those who attempted to do so, developing a propensity for madness. In the right hands, though, well, it would be quite something. The right hands here being anyone who was willing to pay Leo handsomely for its delivery. Or, to be more exact, for it to be swapped out as neither he nor his client wanted to draw attention to the piece. The museum knew it as item 45291-B, but Leo knew it as the Black Grimoire. And so he'd found Jasmine Marsh, a young restorer with a mild gambling problem. Over the space of three months and the judicious application of the talents of a couple of independent contractors Leo regularly used, it had morphed into a major gambling problem. Soon, Jasmine had found herself with a mountain of debt, a girlfriend that was both out of a league and expensive to maintain, and no way out. Enter Leo, the charming man with the offer to make some real money in a way that would have her free and clear if she played it right. A larcenous acquaintance of Leo's procured a set of spare keys from the security firm that would allow access to the special archive section. They could cause a glitch in the museum's security systems while Jasmine was working late one night, and then it would be simple for her to execute the swap. From there, she would be leaving work for the night at the end of a long day, five minutes before the end of a crucial Champions League tie. The museum's guards would wave her through without the technically required search. She had appeared at his hotel room door an hour ago, covered in flop sweat and bearing the package. The plan had worked perfectly. Still, for someone who had never done such a thing before, this was a big line to cross. Jasmine handed him the box with shaking hands, and then a giddy lust filled her eyes as she looked into the bag filled with used notes. She had even mentioned if he needed her help with anything else, she was amenable to the idea. Leo had smiled and nodded. They'd never meet again. She didn't know it yet, but her girlfriend would be gone when she got home too. By midnight, Jasmine would be heartbroken and temporarily solvent, although one of those states was likely to outlast the other by a considerable distance. An eye for weakness. All of this was why Leo was sitting in an uncomfortable chair in a decidedly mid-range hotel room, with only an extraordinary object, a good bottle of wine, and a bad idea for company. The hotel was a habit he'd picked up from Freddy. Never stay in a five-star, it drew unnecessary attention, and besides, the itchy sheets and paltry mini-bar of a lesser establishment kept you focused on the fact you were here on business. He had found himself ruminating on his career throughout the day, 
in hindsight, because this stupid idea was pecking away at his brain, and perhaps that was his better angels trying to remind him of lessons learned. One of the reasons he'd managed to stay alive, intact and sane for this long, by heeding those lessons and staying away from the stupid ideas. He stood up, a decision made. Maybe it had been made a long time ago, and all this had been was pointless procrastination. He opened the box. It wasn't like it was actually a betrayal. He'd been paid to obtain the book. He had acquired the book. There was no mention of him taking pictures of its contents beforehand. Leo knew that was the kind of logic he could find himself screaming into the uncaring void as his body was stretched out on a rack, but ultimately, it didn't matter what you did, only what you got caught doing. The cover looked remarkably ordinary. At least it looked like battered leather. You wouldn't know what it was if you didn't know what it was, at least to look at. Leo wasn't a member of the folk, but even he could feel the book's presence. The hairs on the back of his forearm stood on end as he ran his fingertips across the cover. It didn't have anything written on it in a recognisable language, only the Ouroboros symbol of a snake eating its own tail. It was also remarkably cold to touch. He glanced at the watch on his wrist. He had ninety minutes. Plenty of time. He pulled his phone from his pocket and took a picture of the cover. He got a sudden queasy lurching sensation in his stomach. He really should have eaten something. The last solid food he'd had was a bagel with cream cheese for breakfast. Drinking on an empty stomach was a bad idea. Admittedly, not the worst idea he'd had that day, but still. The binding crackled as he opened the front cover. The book smelled musty, but of something else too. A sickly sweet aroma he couldn't place. He wasn't a fool. He made sure to face away as he turned each page so as not to look directly at the text. He kept his eyes fixed on the terribly bland painting screwed to the wall, presumably in an effort to deter the world's most unambitious art thief, a yellow sailing boat bobbing around on an unconvincing turquoise sea. Leo's nausea was getting steadily worse to the point that he wondered if he was about to throw up. He could taste hot bile in the back of his throat, and a throbbing ache was starting to drill away at his left temple. Still, he was halfway done now. Being careful only to regard it from the corner of his eye, he reached across with his left hand and turned the page, his iPhone held above it in his right, clicking away. He felt himself wobble slightly, unsteady on his feet. He grabbed the back of the chair with his left hand. It occurred to them that all of this would be for nothing if the pictures were out of focus. He glanced at the screen and... His last memory, before he passed out, was the sensation of falling backwards onto the bed. He came around to find the figure of the man he knew as Zander looming over him, a scowl on his face, framed by the water stain on the ceiling. Almost seven feet tall, Zander typically loomed over everyone, even walking with a stoop as he did, but from Leo's supine position, it was considerably more pronounced. With his height, entirely bald head, odd gait and generally vulture-like demeanour, you'd think he would draw considerable attention, and yet it was the exact opposite. Previously, they had met in cafes, galleries, etc., and each time Leo had noted how people seemed to avoid looking at Xander without realising they were doing so, as if the boundaries of reality curved around the man. It wasn't that he was invisible, rather that something in the human mind chose to look elsewhere. It was a rather neat trick, 
You didn't see him unless he wanted to or unless he was standing over you, his eyes burning into you as they peered down along his aquiline nose. Leo went to speak, but Xander raised a hand. Silence. Leo's lips clamped shut, and not by his volition. His brain was starting to come back online, and it was noticing some things. He felt numb. He tried to move and realised while he could shift his head and his fingers, he was in control of nothing else. Panic was rising in his chest now, not least because he remembered what he'd been doing when he'd passed out. This was bad. Very bad. His brain tried to come up with excuses, but then they'd all be for naught if he couldn't move his lips. You damned fool, said Xander, shaking his head. I would have thought you would know better than this, Mr. Klein. The thing hasn't fed in eighty years. Did it not occur to you? It might be hungry. Hungry? That made little sense. Xander disappeared from view, and there were sounds of some form of scuffle. Absent the ability to do anything else, Leo stared at the ceiling and attempted to fight off the rising panic that was threatening to consume him. Yes, this was bad, but then, if Xander wanted him dead, he already would be. There was little consolation in that thought, though, as those images Freddy had shown him all those years ago came flooding back into his head. There were far worse things you could be than dead. Think. He needed to think. He had made a mistake, but what harm had really been done? Xander, or rather his employer, was still getting what they wanted. He was a useful man. He'd offer a grovelling apology, and while it might mean the termination of his employment and the withholding of payment, he could live with that, with the operative word there being live. He heard Xander grunting, a snapping noise, and then what sounded like the lid on a wooden chest being slammed shut. Xander reappeared above Leo, wiping sweat off his brow with a handkerchief. Now, this is important. Was anyone else here? Leo shook his head, still unable to speak. Xander's eyes narrowed. This would be a remarkably bad time to lie to me, Mr. Klein. Were you alone? With an effort to look less frantic, Leo firmly nodded his head. Xander pursed his lips and then shrugged, seemingly satisfied. Very well. Our relationship is, of course, terminated, and allow me to express my employer's displeasure at your betrayal. You will receive half payment on the understanding that your disappointing turn into unprofessionalism will not extend to losing your discretion. I assume we can rely on that, at least? Theo gave another firm nod. Very well. I will at least give you some credit by not explaining what will happen if that is not the case. Everything will cease when I leave the room, bar the cone of silence which will stay in place for fifteen minutes. After that, I would imagine the screaming will be enough to get the attention of the staff. And with that, he disappeared from view again. Screaming? What screaming? A sentence swam back to the forefront of Leo's frantic mind. Did you not think it might be hungry? He heard the hotel room door open and after a few seconds close again. As the lock clicked, it was like he bobbed to the surface of a warm, comforting sea, into a world of pain. It washed over his body and he spasmed, his arms flailing upwards, fists clenched, and he screamed. Then he looked down at his body, at what remained of his body. 
he had no left leg below the knee, and even less remained of the right. Unheard and unheeded, he screamed again. When the ambulance crew arrived, horror writ large across their faces. They gave him something for the pain. The last thing he saw before he lost consciousness again was his chocolate-brown tremezza shoes, lying discarded on the floor. Thank you for listening to the Stranger Times podcast. If you enjoyed it, then please leave a rating wherever you get your pods. The Stranger Times series of books by C.K. MacDonald are available right now in all good bookshops. Check out thestrangertimes.com for loads more fun stuff and to sign up for the newsletter where just for subscribing, you'll get yourself a sweet free ebook containing some Stranger Times short stories. This podcast is produced by Rob B at BEE with Ed Wilson and Wonderwife exec producing and all materials are copyright McFory Inc. Limited. All of the short stories written by me, C.K. McDonald, and the music is done by Alan McGuire with John McCullough as musical Sven Gallagher.